to the 10th PX podcast. My name is Jess Noonan and I'm joined by my colleague Peter Jewell. Today feels like a real milestone for us in recording the 10th podcast and what a better place to celebrate than at the VEPLA conference in Lawn. For those of you that don't know, VEPLA is the Victorian Planning Environmental Law Association. We're recording live today from the conference with the fantastic Rose Arza, who's also participating in a conference session this afternoon. Rose, would you mind giving a quick um, overview of your experience and background, please? Thank you very much for inviting me to participate in this, Jess. It's very kind of you. I am a lawyer turned teacher turned politician turned activist turned writer and I've been involved in multiple community campaigns, uh, many of them around asylum seekers but also around planning and the East West Link campaign uh, that sort of ended last year. Mm. The famous East West Link. Um, so we're interested today in talking to you about social media and how that's changing our cities. Any comments? Well, as you, you may know from statistics uh, are that are almost all people under 40 are engaged in social media. Above uh, 40, uh, the drop-off is, is not that big. So you, there is a, about an 80% connection to the internet across Melbourne and a, a very high percentage of people who are connected to the internet are engaged in social media. So that does mean that... Uh, people are having some form of communication with other people in their city over this mode of of, uh, social media. Whether or not that communication is lending itself to any uh, transformation of the city, I think, is a separate question. Mm -hmm. And I'm not convinced that uh, the use of social media is at the point where there are really measurable changes or transformations to our city emerging from that use. Uh, But uh, certainly the use of apps and collecting data and information via apps is being used in Melbourne and across many cities. Rose, as a former councillor, would you consider social media to be a new democratic tool for the way the community has a voice or or does it artificially amplify the, the, the savvy few who can use social media? Well, I think it's definitely a tool for community to have a voice. Do I think it artificially amplifies the, the, the word of a savvy few? I don't think that you can make that accusation about social media unless the recipient of the communications are misreading it. I think any, uh, any savvy listener or reader or, um, as I say, recipient uh, is generally able to put the context of the communication within the, the, the social media experience Uh, And so um, if there are multiple voices over uh, Twitter or Facebook or YouTube videos or whatever other form of social media uh, we're talking about, uh, an analysis of those should always be cognisant of uh, that context of social media. The use of uh, social media in the East-West Link was a very powerful... um, what, what was the difference in, in that case, do you think? It's interesting that it's been identified as very powerful. It was certainly very strategic. And so social media, linking to that last question about is, does it artificially amplify, well, it can be used very strategically. And that doesn't mean that it's artificial. It means that it's representing voices in a, uh, in a more intelligent way with good arguments mm. towards people and directed towards people who have decision-making power or who are interested in those issues. So with the social media use, particularly on Twitter, for the East-West Link, 
people knew who they were talking to, they were engaging with people who were making decisions or with journalists mm. who were writing about it, mm. and very uh, rational and intelligent points were being made. So it allows people to collect, to group, to group together? Well, there are multiple uses uh, that, that Twitter or Facebook can have. One of those is to unify people who um, have a particular view about an issue, and certainly uh, for the East West Link campaign, that purpose was fulfilled. And you can see that unifying tactic in hashtag activism, hashtag campaigns like Bring Back Our Girls or Occupy Wall Street. You can see those sorts of um, unification uh, across social media. But there are other purposes like organising, letting people know that an event is happening uh, or um, recruiting. We didn't use social media so much as a recruiting device in the East West Link campaign, uh, nor was it a persuasive device. It wasn't a tool of persuasion. It was a tool of organising and unifying. I suppose the, um, I think coming back to your point before about um, using it as a way to um, inform the community, I mean particularly with um, the East West Link, I think the reason everybody knows about the social media campaign is that we had all of the um, age reporters on Twitter following you guys and knowing all about it. So there's a lot of awareness out there about that particular campaign. Um, so it's used, I guess, as a tool for distribu- the distribution of that information. Correct. Yes. And so that information sharing involved campaigners sharing information very directly yeah. with journalists. Yeah. But it wasn't fabricated information or artificial information. Mm-hmm. It was important information that we felt journalists ought to be reporting mm-hmm. on, and in some cases they did. Mm-hmm. I suppose it's a shame that um, it's not used in every single project, really, isn't it? Because then it's just the projects that have a very savvy um, media team behind them, really, or team of of community base behind them using the social media to get those projects out in the the public realm. And just following on from that, Jess, um, Rose, is is the ease of use of social media getting better so that you don't have these barriers to uh, accessing? Look, I think everyone can put together 140 characters on uh, a tweet or can post a, a thought on Facebook, but mm. to use it strategically and to know what audience you're actually trying to speak to or communicate with, to put appropriate links, because a 140-character tweet is a condensed mm. thought and it is more strategic to use that as a link to something more sophisticated and more um, comprehensive so, sure, it's easy for everybody to access it, and so there's that accessibility that's broadened, and it's easy to put things that are engaging and are cute or funny or um, uh, yeah, engaging for people. I'm also thinking about the websites can be developed, and they can feed, everything can feed into a website, or information can be put on the website as a gathering point. Well, that's true. That's true. And some of the more um, conventional use of social media by uh, media houses or publications is that it is a marketing tool for people to uh, draw in listeners or readers to particular things that are already on the website. So equally, campaigners can do that too. And and we were able to to attract people to reports, to findings, to, um, to the blog, to the East West Link blog, via social media. Mm. So Victoria has recently adopted the Recognising Objectors Bill in order to give communities a fair go by requiring responsible authorities and the tribunal to have regard to the number of objections in a permit application when considering a proposal. What are your thoughts about this? 
do you think it's going to have a significant effect on our decision-making process? I think that uh, the legal advice seems to be that the weight of argument, mm -hmm. uh, to, sorry, the merit of the argument and the worthiness of the argument will always be more persuasive than the number of people mm -hmm. who are uh, putting forward objections. I think, though, if you have one person putting forward a very meritorious, strong argument, uh, that is not as strong as 100 people putting mm -hmm. forward that same very strong argument. Mm -hmm. So it will be interesting to see how it is actually uh, translated into to law and interpreted um, by, by VCASH and, and um, by higher courts. Uh, but I don't think there's any need for nervousness mm -hmm. around decisions being made on the basis of poor arguments. Yeah. yeah, and probably, I mean, it's very easy to round up a whole neighbourhood against a particular development, but again, like you said, if it's someone that's five kilometres away from a new, a new house being constructed, obviously the, the weight to that argument is, is reduced and you would look at the, the people that are closer and actually affected by the actual development. In, in that particular case? Look, I think that that is, it will all be looked at very much um, within the context mm. and the usual parameters of, of where are there social harms from this particular development, mm. how acutely felt will they be by the people who are objecting. I, I don't think any of that will change. Mm. Equally though, I think it, there is, it is okay for people across Melbourne or across Victoria to have views about public planning. And I think it's perfectly okay for people to who live in Heidelberg to have a view about whether uh, a 20-storey building mm. in Footscray is a, a good strategic um, a plan, mm. a, a way of, of planning uh, population spread or economic spread across the whole mm. of Melbourne. Would you say that's different to an objection then? Like a view is different to an objection? Or would you would you separate the two out? Well, it will be your point about whether some if someone is, is physically distanced mm. from a particular planning proposal, is their particular objection going to be uh, given the same weight, mm. even if it is the same, say, st argument about strategy, planning yeah. policy, Let's see how that plays out, because yeah. I actually don't think there's any reason for the Heidelberg objection to be viewed any less. Mm. It'll be very interesting to see what happens. Uh, Rose, social media represents new value for local authorities in terms of awareness of, the, of their communities. Uh, and do you think that there's a potential for local government to be overwhelmed by the, the social media uh, inputs that they receive? Well, I think I can, um, as a former councillor, um, I think I can say that, that councils really have to catch up yeah. and government has to catch up. And I, and I can say that with, with all due empathy and uh, for local councils who are obviously working under um, considerable pressures and resource pressures. Uh, but there is a noticeable and documented gap between the way of business between the way of community interacting and, and businesses making use of the new emerging technologies and government entities being a bit slower. Well we need to move to an electronic system to start with <laughs> before we move to social media. No comment. Do, do you think this is, Rose, this is, I mean this has all happened so very quickly. I mean we didn't have this 10 years ago and government is normally a cautious beast. 
and it's it's just adapting this you know spectacular new forms of engagement into a very old system. There are lots of institutions that have uh, like legal institutions, uh, many business institutions are quite old and, and conventional in their practices. If they really uh, want to make use of new technologies then they need to invest in people and um, infrastructure to do that and to really make use of the communication tool that's there. Australia has a small population and I think sometimes that is one of the reasons that we don't embrace things so quickly, that that imperative is, I think, dampened a little bit by our small population and our uh, vastly uh, disparate population across mm -hmm. the whole of Australia. For, if you're living in the States, there's no excuse not to, to jump on board and you're missing out on, on market share, on opportunities by not embracing technology. And they have a tradition there of citizens' referendums a lot more than we do. I mean, there's a lot more grassroots... Uh, government than we have. I maybe. think we're about to develop a tradition of plebiscites in mm. Australia, yeah, yeah. <laughs> potentially, but that's, social media is not a plebiscite. It doesn't, it doesn't um, replace uh, other forms of citizen involvement in democracy, but it is another way of people being involved mm. and another way of uh, people engaging in debate and being contacted. And it, it does break down some uh, barriers to uh, accessibility, accessibility uh, for community members. I wonder whether, you know, five, ten years down the track, we'll start to see social media people within government dedicated just to um, spread the word, I suppose, of what those councils are doing and to respond to some of the objections that come through via social media. My view be would be that they should be doing that already. Mm. Or they should, definitely. Well, a shire I'm familiar with, there is, they've got their Facebook page. Oh, they do? And okay. uh, they are constantly putting things out, and a lot of people are hooked into it. Mm. So um, it's a great, particularly not the well-resourced councils where mm. population spread out. Yeah. Look, 14 million uh, unique Australian users of Facebook. Mm. Not all of those are people, some of those are entities. Yeah. Uh, but that is a big number. Only about 3 million um, Twitter users. So Twitter, uh, perhaps the, the Twitter sector is a little bit more restricted to journalists or uh, it, it is a bit more limited. Facebook still has a very big and broad platform. Social media advocates like to suggest that this engagement draws on the, the wisdom of crowds, that, that uh, thought, capturing ideas in a way that that isn't possible using traditional forms of consultation. What are your thoughts on that sort of using the technology for that wisdom of crowds? Well, the normal rate of survey response when you send out a survey in the post to councils and asking people whether they want the trees removed in the street, for example, the normal rate of survey response is incredibly low. 10% would be a great response or 20% would be amazing. So if there is a way of increasing the respondents to a community consultation and increasing the, the methodologies that are used to gather the wisdom of the crowd, then let's use it. Uh, is there a danger that a lot of complex issues will be reduced down to a tweet response? I mean, that, there is that concern. 
Well, I think the people who have that concern perhaps don't jump on Twitter all that often because the majority of uh, tweets, as I mentioned before, are actually links to other... It's a... It's a, a portal to spring off, to find, to delve into the amazing mine of the internet where there is a plethora of information for, uh, for communities. I guess for local government as well, um, the social media really provides that critical feedback mechanism as well. So, I mean, even finding out there's a, a broken drain or um, something, some other kind of traffic incident in a particular local street where there's a school or, you know, little things like that it can be used for to support the local community. So that's actually where a lot of apps have, have mm. found um, great use. Mm. And so there have been some studies to, that have looked at the role of Twitter and Facebook in emergencies, in floods and earthquakes. There are some good examples internationally about the way social media has been useful to get information in a timely fashion to people, useful information. Mm. In emergencies. Yeah, in emergencies, that's right. And apps have had success in um, bike accident Mm. uh, identification or pothole reporting. Mm. So I think the the flexibility of finding the right tool, it's always finding the right Mm. technological tool and not just jumping on the latest fad, whether it be social media or whatever it is, but finding the one that can gather the information that's useful for local councils, compile it, collate it and present it to community in a way that can then change people's experience Mm. of their neighbourhood. Because you can almost say that that whole um, phenomenon... phenomenon. (laughs) was um, sparked by the bushfires because that's where a lot of these apps came from Correct. And helping inform the community in a, in a quick time. In Australia, that's the case. Mm. In uh, Internationally, there, is, and there are some terrific examples mm. of um, post-earthquakes and floods. Is it a way, Rose, that th- this engagement can uh, draw uh, have better relationships between authorities and people so that people no longer just uh, are not so apathetic, but they're engaged and that they see that there's responses. Um, well, is that I relationship building I'm talking about? It does depend on the way uh, the authority chooses to make use of the mode of communication. And that, that could be said about any form of communication, whether it is um, true consultation or whether it is uh, information giving, not soliciting responses. So I think that is up to the to the authority to be really clear about how involved citizens are going to be allowed to be in participatory democracy or true consultation. And uh, key characteristics to a smarter social media city are said to be... In, uh, the key principles are to be engaging, transparent, nimble and secure. Now, these aren't features typically associated with government. And I'm not being critical of government, but we'll just go through those points. Engaging, transparent, nimble and secure. Well, security is an ongoing issue, but um, I think the, with social media it depends on what sort of information is being sought and educating people about what sort of information is advisable to convey publicly. Um, Those other issues around uh, engaging transparency and, well, if 
there is no excuse for governments to not try to be nimble and transparent and engaging. They, they are. They're aspirations. And if, if there are technologies that can enable councils to do that more confidently or more, more easily, uh, as I say, let's employ those digital communicators <laughs> within different levels of, of, um, of governmental operations. Mm. So we've heard from Clay Lucas recently of the AH newspaper, and he um, his view is that governments can be highly secretive and resistant to transparency and openness. Why would social media change this, do you think? Well, I don't know if it, it necessarily can mm. change that. Uh, some so it can provide insight. Well, I mean, there are some good examples that we see, particularly at the federal political level, where questions are put via people, or via um, social media, and the MP, for whatever reason, chooses to respond mm-hmm. and can be held accountable to that. We, we've seen that um, in a number of different quite critical examples. Mm-hmm. Um, but that, that... So maybe there is the potential for greater exposure... Uh, it, I, I mean, I'm not necessarily confident that that, that is going to be... That, that greater transparency is going to emerge from the use of social media. Mm-hmm. Uh, you still need all those other watchdogs that are looking out for, um, for hidden agendas or contradictions or information that's not shared. Um, I mean, we, we have, there are examples of of secrecy where journalists have difficulty getting information, mm-hmm. um, social media is not going to change that. Mm-hmm. I don't mean to push this anti-government line of questions, Rose, but the cost of customer service interaction on the web is nearly 11 times cheaper than a phone uh, transaction and nearly 25, 25 times less expensive than an equivalent face-to-face meeting. So this whole digitisation social media has the potential to for governments to slash their the servicing costs. Could this just be a cynical move in that direction, do you think, if, if governments fully embrace this sort of thing? Well, given those uh, economic benefits, uh, really the case has been made, hasn't it, for a digital <laughs> transformation? You should go and spruik it to them. Um, look, there's always a place for... for uh, personalised responses in government, and it's getting that balance right. Um, but if you know, the the purpose of all of the interactions from the government or from a, a local government level, let's say, does need to be genuine and sincere, uh, and uh, sometimes that's going to necessitate a personalised um, interaction. Um, but, you know, it's probably okay for people to complain about their, their rates over an electronic form of communication. There are probably some things that, that uh, people would be very happy to, um, to see done in electronic form. The balance, it's, all, it's all about balance. Rose, we've talked a lot about government, but in, in terms of the, the development sector, this is a new uh, sphere of uh, engagement. And for development projects, typically it's very been paper-based and, you know, the plans and things like that. But are you seeing uh, more adaptive developers using social media on projects or is that not yet coming through? I, I probably couldn't comment on that. Um, I think you're right to identify that the 
institutional processes are still very paper-based mm. and that's the same across a number of institutions, government legal um, institutions. That we do, I think we do need to make that, that shift and I know there have been efforts in the past and they've been, uh, the costs have blown out and they've, they haven't worked. Uh, I think we need to persevere to, uh, in, you know, to make that shift. Yep. What were your experiences as a counsellor in terms of consultation? The quality of it varies incredibly. Mm. The, the expectations of community are often in conflict with the, uh, the purpose of the consultation or the expectations of the authority. So what, what are my experiences is that it can be done very, very badly. Mm consultation can also be done very well mm. when the the the, um, the authority is genuinely inviting feedback and there is no reason why that feedback can't be solicited mm. in in different forms the effectiveness of it depends on of course uh, how receptive the authority is going to be mm. to um, to, to criticism or uh, to, to comments. Because there's a lot of um, councils these days that don't actually do any consultation, which is interesting. There is some uh, consultation that's mandatory. There is some, yeah. So in order to change some aspects of mm. streetscapes or mm. uh, parking or um, there is actually a necessity to a requirement to consult with people, but that that consultation can be ticked off by putting letters in the post. Yeah, exactly. I mean, there is a, there is a fatigue set. You know, fatigue does set in when you have mandatory mediation meetings between applicants and objectors. Some councils have, uh, and I've been participant on those, and there is a sense of fatigue amongst the planning officers that they are just going through the motions to tick off the box. They've already made up their minds. And I'm not being critical of planning officers, but you do tend to form an opinion fairly early on. It's such an important part of the process. I, I agree, but it's just almost that like human seems, nature. Seems like it's going through the motions almost. Yeah. Oh well, maybe so. they're being run badly because the uh, I think uh, you know certainly uh, in my ex humble experience, uh, there uh, I, uh, the they are the forums in which very um, specific and measurable changes and alterations can be made. It's direct consultation and um, I've experienced those very positively. So it's a shame to hear if there's fatigue well, planners, coming in. I don't know, I'll have to go and give them some Barocca. Planners fake it, planners <laughs> fake it sometimes. That's what I'll say. But a, a variety of technologies uh, collect an enormous amount of data and a range of data and consciously or unconsciously citizens are adding to all the data gathering in cities. Um, these are these are very very valuable resource for urban designers, for example, and others. Any, any comment on that new data comments? Well, that's look. I think that is one of the uh, under-tapped uses of whether it's apps or whether it's. Um, I mean, social media, as, as I say, it has more privacy concerns uh, that have been raised rather than um, people being happy to give out data over social media platforms. But specific, the, uh, the development of specific applications that um, can collect 
really important data and some of those applications, whether it be around street, streets or transport or accidents, uh, there have not been to date any other forms of collecting that data. So it is quite transformative and uh, can provide a, a, um, a very efficient way of collecting real data. Just finishing up, uh, what are you reading or watching or listening to that inspires you about your current roles? One of the things that does perplex me about this, uh, about social media is that uh, given that we are so connected to the rest of the world through these platforms, our media sources lock us in still to very parochial concerns and localised concerns. So I tend to use uh, things like social media to draw me to things that are happening in other parts of the world and uh, whether it be looking at international news sources, um, papers from other places or investigative journalism that's going on, um, looking at uh, Australia's involvement in mines in Africa. That's how I like to use social media and that's what draws me to the reading that I'm doing at the moment. All right, well, thank you, Rose, and thank you for that fascinating discussion today. Thank you also to Vipa for having us at the conference. For more information on our upcoming podcast, please visit our website at www.planningexchange.org. Thank you again, Rose. Thank you, Jess, and thank you, Peter. What's the meaning of this, sir? Huh? I mean, you get $20 for a record. $20, sir? That don't sound right. I mean, you get $20 for a record. $20, sir? That don't sound right.